Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Yes, a change does have to come. Change in the form of justice, equity, and basic human dignity that has been systematically and violently denied for centuries because of the color of one's skin. The multi-headed hydra of racism has permeated deep into our society, and it will take each and every one of us following the lead of black and brown voices of change to work with discipline and passion day in and day out until racism's stain has been washed from our national fabric. Starting with the Black Power movement of the 1970s and continuing right up to the present, Angela Glover Blackwell has been that voice of change. A lawyer by training, Angela gained national recognition, a founder of the Oakland Urban Strategies Council, where she pioneered new approaches to neighborhood revitalization. From 1977 to 1987, Ms. Glover Blackwell founded PolicyLink in 1999 with a mission of advancing racial and economic equity for all. Through her writing, speaking, and leadership, Angela has helped to grow and define a national equity movement focused on innovating and improving public policy with a wide range of partners to ensure access and opportunity to all low-income people and communities of color particularly in the areas of building an equitable economy, health, housing, transportation infrastructure, and arts and culture. Angela Glover Blackwell is the host of the recently launched and incredible podcast, Radical Imagination, and is the co-author of Uncommon Common Ground, Race and America's Future. Ms. Glover Blackwell earned her bachelor's degree from Howard University and law degree from the University of California, Berkeley. I start by asking Angela when she knew she was going to devote her life to promoting racial justice. From the moment that I came out of college, and I came out of college into the Black Power Movement, I knew that I wanted to devote my life to trying to advance racial justice, achieve racial justice. And I've had a lot of different opportunities to do that. So my whole adult life has been devoted to this, but it's only been in recent years that I have come to the conclusion that so many of the systems and attitudes that hold us back as a nation in terms of being able to be fully inclusive were never set up for that goal. And reform efforts two years ago, PolicyLink had one of its summits. And the theme was our power, our future, our nation. We were trying to make the point in 2018 that we really did have the power to try to achieve what we wanted, that the future will be determined by what happens to the very people who are being left behind, and that we need to stop standing on the outside of the nation mentally, thinking about what it needs to do and see ourselves as leaders to do it. And my opening talk was called Radical Imagination Fueling Change. And really was trying to set a tone that says, it is within our imaginations 
to visualize what it is we need. And we need to use that as our North Star so that even if we're just doing reform efforts, we know that the reform is not winning. It has to be a step in the direction of our North Star. And to turn things upside down in terms of how we think about change, understanding that we will not achieve health through the provision of health care. It's essential, but insufficient. We need healthy communities. We need healthy environments. We need access to food. We need incomes that allow people to be able to live with dignity, to understand that providing health care doesn't achieve well-being that we can't solve our housing problems just by building more housing. We need to rethink housing because we have a lot of empty housing around. But the structure of how we think about housing allows for empty housing and homelessness to exist side by side. We need to begin to think of housing as a human right and also lifted up the notion that we cannot arrest ourselves to safety that police are not what we need to build safe communities. We need to think about getting rid of police and asking ourselves, what do we need for the safety that we want? It takes trust. It takes familiarity. It takes a whole lot of things that have nothing to do with policing. And so back in 2018, I never expected that those ideas would now be front and center. So when we started the podcast a year ago, a little less, we just picked up on those themes and we were moving forward. And it has been really interesting to find the advocates all across the country and to tell their stories and to lift up their solutions. And now seeing them out there on the streets of the nation leading change. It's amazing to see that transformation. And maybe you could kind of recount the, the history of why do we have police? I think we all take police for granted. You were just saying we're not going to arrest our way to safety. Why do we even have a police force? When I decided to do the podcast on police abolition, I had to educate myself. And what I discovered is that police in the South started to catch runaway slaves. That's how they developed. Mm -hmm. That police in the Northeast started to hold down the demands and the activities of labor. In the Southwest, it was the Texas Rangers. Oh, and we know what they were doing. And yet we have taken these systems that were all about contain and control and we have tried to turn it into the mechanism for community safety and well-being. And it's ridiculous. What we really need to ask is, what do we want? And then think about who best can do it. We know that we have a mental health problem that keeps presenting itself to the police. Over half of the police killings in the nation are of people who have mental health problems. And yet, we're not turning to mental health professionals to deal with that. We're trying to train police how to respond when there's a mental health emergency. And then not getting it, obviously. Um, that we know that young people don't have enough to do. And we give police money for things like midnight basketball and other kind of sports programs for young people. And yet, we have neighborhood associations. We have boys and girls clubs. We have organizations that are there to engage young people who are strapped for resources and going out of business every day. Day. And when we think about domestic violence, a lot of domestic violence requires a number of interventions that have nothing to do with policing. And so moving from understanding, well, why did this institution develop in the first place to asking, is this the institution for the goals that we now in modern day see that we need and thinking about using our budget so that we are really as municipalities and other regions investing the resources where they really are going to make the difference that lead to well-being that lead to safety. 
Because when we talk about defunding the police, it gets so caught in people's emotions. And yet when we talk about defunding education, defunding the arts, it just goes completely unnoticed. But defunding police, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. That's exactly the reaction. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had recently about this. And a couple of things that seem to be going on in people's minds. One is they think that they really depend on the police to keep them safe. And I have a number of stories that I can tell, and most people can, of needing the police, and they were not there. More likely than not, at the moment that you need them, they are not there. They can't be every place. They're not going to be there when you need them. Calling the police, and they do not come. I don't know if this is true in communities that are overwhelmingly white, but I certainly know that in black communities that that's true. Once I needed them, and they didn't come for four hours. So I know that they don't always come. Now, I'm not going to say that there are no circumstances under which we need people who can bring a certain level of intimidation and force. But if that's what we need, we need to be clear about when it is we're likely to need it, what kind of people you want. Because in that kind of situation that is fraught with danger, you want people who are responsible, who are caring, who are empathetic, who have good instincts. And I don't know that we have hired for that in terms of the people who are now on the police force. As a matter of fact, I know that we haven't consistently done so. And so there may be a small role, but we need to really think about get rid of it, start over, create what you really do need, and put the resources where you can really make a difference. Take us back to, to how our nation was founded and, and how that's impacting us now. We need to understand that this nation was founded on stolen land, genocide, and human bondage. And the narratives that justified that beginning have continued over time, right to the present day. And if you think about it, the nation needed narratives to justify putting people in human bondage, taking land. And it was a narrative that was based on a hierarchy of human value, that some life is valued more than others, and that some life is of little value that you need pay no attention to it. That narrative continues as we have a society in which there is race and ethnic-based inequality, that people still have a narrative churning in their heads that each man for himself. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Hard work pays off. That kind of thing that says if people aren't doing well, if they haven't been able to progress, it's their fault. Mm. And it's their fault and it's what you would expect because they don't have as much. They're not as valuable. We have to jettison this hierarchy of human value because as long as that narrative is running in the background of the nation, we're going to keep getting the kind of results that we have. And we're at a moment where not only can we do it, we must do it, because we're becoming a nation in which the majority will be people of color by 2040. Already in California, it's been true for decades. But what we're going to see is going forward, the fate of the nation is dependent on the very people who have been left behind. And it's not until we begin to make the investment in them that the nation can plan on thriving into the future. If we get it right in terms of education, and entrepreneurship and economic well-being, if we make sure that the ones who've been left behind can fully participate and prosper, the nation will benefit. That equity agenda, just and fair inclusion into a society in which all can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential is the most important agenda for the economy, for the democracy, for the nation. And yet it feels 
Like so many people are clinging on to the myth of our founding in a way that doesn't acknowledge the genocide and slavery and, uh, you know, the atrocities of grabbing land. Why is it so painful for us to confront our past? Oh, people are nostalgic for a time that never was while ignoring a future that is inevitable, and they are finding comfort in that. They're nostalgic for a time that never was because they're telling them this story about how their ancestors just worked hard and were able to achieve, and they feel so proud and about that. And the future feels awkward and unknown and scary. A lot of people who are white, if they think about it at all, assume that people who are black must be angry with them, must be ready to try to hurt them and get revenge for what has happened. What they fail to see is people just want to get the knee off their neck. They want to be able to breathe. They want to be able to step into their fullness and be able to make the kind of contribution and reap the kind of benefits that the myth of the nation has said should be available to everybody, but people know it's not available to them. So you have people who are clinging to a past that never was because they like that story, and they're afraid of the future because they don't trust it to include them. And don't buy the uh, narrative that I just put forward that equity and inclusion is good for everybody. They're afraid to believe that, but it really is true. I often say that equity is the superior growth model, the superior democratic model, the superior model for the country, and it is the moral one. Angela, what do you think the path forward looks like? I think the way forward really is going to be um, long. We're in a very troubled period. I, I hope it doesn't get much worse than it is now, but it is bad now. And real change requires going through a bad period, the disruption of the change, the insecurity of the change. When we start to come out of it, and the young people are starting to lead the way. I think that a lot of people are going to get on board. Everyone won't, but a lot of people are going to get on board. I'm seeing business leaders and civic leaders step up in ways that I never imagined could happen. Whether or not this is going to translate into long-term change depends on what those leaders do. But they're seeing it, they're acknowledging it, that is an important first step. And they're starting to make pledges and commitments what role do you think the business community needs to play? The business community is essential here because over the last decades, business really has hijacked democracy. Business has hijacked democracy through uh, money and politics, through extraordinary lobbying presence in state capitals and in the nation's capital. So that business has been able to bend democracy toward its needs. Well, now that it owns it, it needs to use that power to achieve the goal that is needed right now. And so as business is asking, what can I do? The main thing that they can do is use their enormous power and clout to be able to make sure that we have the systems that we need to get on the path that we now see we need to be on. We've got to invest in education. We've got to make sure that we have universal health care. We need to be able to have real underpinnings for people who are participating in the economy. They need full-time jobs. They need voice at work. They need safety. They need paid family leave. We don't have to search for the agenda. 
Advocates have been pushing that agenda for decades, but they have not been able to break through. All we need to do is now create space and bring all the power of the lobbying of those people who have it to be able to get that kind of agenda in place that really helps to build a fully inclusive society. That is what I'm hoping for. I'm ready to to vote for Angela for president right now. Given that we don't really live in a meritocracy, given that we've had centuries of inequality and racism that have resulted in huge disparities in income with the richest 1% having as much as the the rest of the country. How do we deal with that structural inequity to, to make sure that everyone has a fair chance? When we talk about who's being left behind, people who are Black and Latinx and Native American and Asian, that number's huge. And that is the number that's going to be controlling the nation going forward. But... The development of what I call the black-white paradigm really captures everybody who's vulnerable in society because of the genocide and the isolation of Native Americans and the bondage of people who were black in slavery in the South and other areas of the country created a living together of people who were black and white that in many ways set the terms and the protocols of oppression for the nation so that it continues to be the black-white paradigm that is so defining. So that if you are Latinx or you're a person with disabilities or you're transgender and you are vulnerable, you fall into that that deep hole created by the black-white paradigm, and you are impacted by the stinginess of investing in public goods like education and health and all those things that really tried to justify that black people couldn't have access to that. And therefore, people who need it don't have access to it. So one thing that we have to do if we want to really get on the other side is we've got to face the anti-blackness. And we've got to face it not to the exclusion of any other group, but to the deep understanding that all other groups need to have in order to be effective advocates for where it is they need to go. That's one thing we need to do. The next thing we need to do is we really need to invest in the public goods. Angela, the inequities and broader issues with our education system seem like a place that we need to start. We need a 21st century education system, and we need to make sure that the children of the future have access to it in all the ways that they need, whatever that requires. People who are Latino, Asian, and African-American are three times as likely as people who are white to start small businesses. The entrepreneurial spirit is there, but the resources to be able to build those businesses, to have the investments, to have that entrepreneurial spirit attached to what's next, that does not exist. We need a structure to do that, and the reason we need it is because we need for that entrepreneurial spirit to begin to fuel our economy, and that is what's going to keep it moving. Because when you think about it, It's the people who have skin in the game in terms of family and community who really are the innovators and the ones who both are going to be developing the things that the economy needs, but also are the consumers. And so we need to make sure that the people who are going to be that uh, are ready. We need to have leaders 
who have a vision for a future, a vision for a future that is inclusive, that can tell a story that everybody can see themselves in the story. It's not like we are kicking anybody to the side. We need to have leaders who tell that story, who believe that story, and can attach their leadership and policy work to that vision going forward. We need to keep this kind of conversation going, and we need to have some grace and some patience and um and use that now to be able to keep this going until it becomes a story of our past. It's been a long, long time coming, but I know, but I know the The Black Power Movement had so much potential and energy. Um, the Civil Rights Movement led to the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. How, how do we... How do we learn from those movements to make sure what we're doing today is successful? I think what we learn is that we need multiple kinds of leadership, and they all help us. Um, I was a girl during the Civil Rights Movement, and I knew it was important, and my parents were certainly very much embracing of it. But I came out of college into the Black Power Movement, and it energized me in a way that the Civil Rights Movement had not. There was an edge to it. There was an anger about it. There was a a stance of real respect um, and ownership and confidence, which is was much more consistent with how I thought we ought to be in the world. Um, and there was... Um, I'm not going to take it anymore about it. Um, and, and there was a rejection in some ways of nonviolence as a way to express the confidence that people were feeling. All of it was important. The civil rights movement was important. The nonviolent aspect of it was important. The black power was important. The raised fist is important. That some people are willing to put their lives on the line. That's important, too. Change doesn't just happen. It takes strategy. It takes commitment. It takes organizing. It takes being willing to raise a fist. It takes people who are willing to put their bodies on the line. It takes people who are willing to insult and scream. And it also takes people who are willing to compromise a little bit and to, and to draw people in who you think could never be drawn in. And we just have to accept that all that needs to happen. And you can't orchestrate it. I mean, the people who want change now aren't going to just turn around and start singing the praise for people who said, I've got patience and I can wait for change in 20 years. The anger, all of that is part of what happens. And if you have a place where you can plug in, plug in there. Plug in there. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle. Angela, how, how did the Black Power Movement inspire you? I was inspired by the Black Power Movement, and I always tell people it, is, it has been part of my journey because I became an advocate. I became an organizer. I learned to demand change. I demanded it in my own way, but I understood that my role was never going to be to be the mayor of a town. I respect the mayors, but I want to talk about with purity where it is we're going. I want to tell the truth of where we've been. And while I want to do it in a way that it doesn't fall on deaf ears because I was saying it in such a way that it couldn't be heard, but I 
am not one that has laid out my role as the role of compromise. Uh, but I respect the people who go into politics, which is the work of compromise. I respect them, but that doesn't mean I'm going to, not going to push hard. And so when we think about how change happens, it happens because there's a moment in which it can happen and that people play their role, whatever it is, to the max. And that however people are going about it, they have a North Star that includes appreciating the humanity of us all. And that in the end, we're putting in our peace with faith that people will continue to do it, that we will continue to move forward, but that if you don't put in your peace to your fullest, there will be a weakness in the chain. One of the things that is so troubling about our nation is that your zip code is your determinant of your health. You look at where black and brown communities live and low-income communities, that's where the wastewater treatment plant is. That's where the hazardous waste dump is. That's where the freeway and the freight is. And so many of the systemic injustices are baked in, as redlining was, to local land use planning. How do we start grappling with some of these really complex issues of place determining your outcome? Where you live in America is a proxy for opportunity. You tell me your zip code, and I can tell you way more about your prospects than I should be able to, including your life expectancy. The reason that that is true is that, first, because of the hierarchy of human value, people of color, particularly black people, were pushed into communities that were lacking in whatever the essentials were. As people began to leave the South, black people in the Great Migration and move to the North and the Northeast and the West, they were kept out of communities of opportunity because they could not purchase homes there, they couldn't get loans to purchase homes, and they ended up in the least desirable areas of cities, old, crumbling. And that meant a couple of things. One, that the main vehicle for building wealth in this country for most people has been home ownership. It meant that while the suburbs were being developed and white people were being subsidized through the infrastructure investment, through GI loans, through no interest loans, that being able to have their wealth built, that black people were kept out of that. So it not only meant that black people were forced to live in communities that sometimes were not safe in terms of toxins, that were not uh, surrounded by the amenities of good schools and places to be able to go to the drugstore or the grocery store. It also meant that they were denied wealth building, which has had a tremendous impact on how people are doing today. Being denied that access to wealth has created a racial wealth gap in this country that is just astonishing. What it has also done, it has been able to limit people's political power because they haven't had access to being able to influence across their nation. There are communities in this country that don't have access to water and they are Native American communities, they're 
where Latinx people live on the border in California and Texas. There are communities in the South and Mississippi, but also some of the cities that used to be the prize of the nation, Newark, Philadelphia, places that have serious water problems that they should not have. And it really is being brought into sharp relief when we're talking about how important it is to be able to stay clean, to be able to wash your hands right now, to be protected from COVID, that there's some communities for whom that that is not even a starter. The same is true in terms of housing, that people live in housing that is full of lead and other things that are causing great harm. That when we think about how we're going to get out of this, we really are going to have to focus on every single thing. But this notion that where you live is a proxy for opportunity has got to drive everything that we're doing. What role do reparations play in us moving forward as a nation? I don't think that we get to move forward until we deal with acknowledging the horrendous sin that existed even before the nation was founded and built the wealth of a nation. The wealth of this nation was built on cotton. The wealth of the nation was based on slavery. It was a terrible, inhumane, sinful thing to do. And it has placed black people at a disadvantage that continues to this day. And while some people are able to escape it, many, many, many black people live in poverty that is shameful. This nation needs to apologize for that. It needs to acknowledge and apologize for it. And then it needs to repair the breach. It really needs to Focus on how do we make up for it without apologizing for it, without acknowledging it. There will never be any support for making up for it, but we have to make up for it. And the government has to do it because it was government-sanctioned oppression. And businesses have to engage in it because they're the ones who were able to benefit from a system that allowed for all of the wealth building that has taken place. And we need to do that thoughtfully. I think that we need commissions to think about the best ways to do it. But business doesn't have to wait for a commission. Business can start doing it right now. And one of the areas I think is really ripe for moving forward is the banking industry. Because the banking industry not only was able to benefit in the time of slavery and right after, but the denial of loans to businesses. You think it's not much, but it's huge. So there's so many issues that the banking industry was complicit in. I think the banking industry ought to take the lead in the business sector to be able to do something about it. But also local communities are starting to look at reparations. They're not waiting for the nation to step in. So reparations, just like um, defunding police, is, is in a gallop mode right now. We'll see what happens. So talking of seeing what happens, it's just been a a real honor and pleasure talking to you, Angela. And for listeners, this is a time that you really need to spend more time listening to Angela. Half an hour has not been enough. But luckily, Angela has her own podcast called Radical Imagination. Tell us about your podcast, uh, how often it comes out, and how people can get access to it. Uh, The podcast started in uh, September of last year. It comes, a new one comes out about every two weeks, and it's really been a pleasure to do it. And what we're looking for are the stories and solutions that are fueling change and highlighting the extraordinary people around this country who have moved to the edges of their imagination and are translating that into uh, real concreteness. 
So look on our website. You'll be able to get a link directly to Angela. Listen to her. Share it with friends. There's no more important conversation than the one that Angela's engaging us all in right now. So thank you so much, Angela. Thank you, Jared. It's my pleasure. It's been so long. It's been so long. I lived too long. But change has got A huge thank you to Angela Glover Blackwell for talking with us today. Angela has dedicated her life to the pursuit of racial justice, and now we must join her by helping in any way that we can. Some of us are marching, others sending bail money to marchers. Many have been fighting in the trenches of environmental justice for decades. What we all have in common is that we cannot rest until the corrosive and toxic foundations of racism have been routed from every aspect of our government, business, communities, police, and society at large. We must demand immediate action. This moment we find ourselves in will shape the future. The momentum, anger, and desire for change can help us implement the policies that Angela and many social justice organizations have been advocating since the 1970s. The ideas that will help us achieve racial justice are not new. What is new is a rising national consciousness that the time for change is now. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld. Please check out Angela Glover Blackwell's amazing podcast, Radical Imagination. <laughs>